Well, now I just want to make a little plug on something that I talk about annually with my patients, and that is making sure you get your shingle shot because there is a certain type of shingles that can affect the eye. And if you've gotten your shingles shot, which is usually called, it's a standard vaccine, a very safe vaccine that's been around. It's a two-step vaccine. We start to give it around age 55 because shingles uncommonly can affect the eye, but when it does, it can really threaten your eye. So I always like to make a plug about that. You know, shingles can occur anywhere on the body. It's usually one-sided. It can be very painful, but it also can affect eyesight. Welcome to Finding Your Wellness, a podcast brought to you by the Columbia Association. I am Dr. Harry Oaken, a community physician for over 35 years and the Columbia Association's medical director. I'm very proud to be working with the Columbia Association for over a decade to assist in their mission to improve the health and wellness of our community. Today, our focus is on eye health. National surveys tell us that one of the most significant worries that people have is losing their vision. In the big list of worries, most people are worried about cancer, heart disease, and dementia, but also their vision. Globally, more than 250 million people live with visual acuity loss or blindness. And again, people in the United States fear losing their vision actually more than memory, hearing, or speech. So today, we're going to talk about keeping your eyes healthy. With us today is my friend and colleague, Dr. Dean Gleros. He is an assistant professor of ophthalmology at the Wilmer Eye Institute, which is part of Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. He's a comprehensive ophthalmologist. He has special interests in cataract surgery, glaucoma, diabetic retinopathy, dry eye, and other medical conditions. Dr. Gleros received his medical degree from the University of Maryland and performed his medical internship at the University of North Carolina. He then completed a residency in ophthalmology at the University of Maryland. Before joining the Wilmer faculty, he was in private practice and then became the clinical director of the Columbia location. Dr. Gleros is a member of the American Academy of Ophthalmology, and he's also a member of our Columbia Association's Medical Advisory Board. So it's my pleasure to have my good friend and colleague, Dr. Gleros, with us. Welcome, Dean. Thank you, Harry. We'll talk first. I think a lot of people actually don't get their eyes checked regularly. Very often, I'll ask when I'm seeing patients, when was the last time you had your eyes checked and who's checking them? So let's talk first a little right. bit about that. So what do you recommend to your average adult for periodic checking of their eyesight? Yeah, first of all, for those people, those adults who have children, and many of us do, it's, as we know, the pediatricians do a great job of screening in the office, but we, we recommend an exam by an optometrist or ophthalmologist around the age of five. But for adults, really, it, we, we recommend an exam every couple of years from the teens on until you get to be around the age of 40. And then probably every year after that would be the ideal. Truthfully, we often see patients for the first time around the age of 40, 45, when they start having presbyopic symptoms, which means they can no longer read up close without glasses. And, and that's often the reason why we get we kind of start seeing patients again after a long hiatus. So every couple of years for young adulthood, and then probably every year, certainly starting at 40, 45, because that's when chronic diseases of the eyes start to begin. So there's an awful lot of people that are not having their eyes checked is the bottom line. Very many. And uh, yes, that's not unusual at all for me to see a patient 50 years old and I ask them when their last eye exam was and they'll kind of smirk or smile and say, well, I guess when I was, you know, in kindergarten. 
And they'll say things like, well, my eyes have always felt fine. I can see the golf ball, so why do I need to get my eyes examined? And of course, we all know that there's much more to it than that. There are um, diseases of the eyes, unfortunately, or, or largely silent until they're advanced. Right. That's a really great point. I think there's some general confusion about who should be checking your eyes. You know, patients, many people don't know the difference between an optician and an optometrist and an ophthalmologist. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, opticians are the, the folks who make glasses. They receive prescriptions from optometrists or ophthalmologists, and they're the ones who actually either make the glasses or send them off to be made. They also dispense contact lenses these days. They do not prescribe glasses or contacts, but they're the ones who work in lens crafters or the old-fashioned optical shops now that are going by the wayside. And uh, it's uh, an old and venerable profession, large in the past, passed down from parent to child. And unfortunately, now they're being replaced by large chains. But they are not doctors. They merely make the glasses. It's a very important part of the chain, but they do not, they don't do eye exams. Optometrists, they go to college, MDs do, but they, instead of going to medical schools, they go on to optometry school. And typically that's four years. Lately, they are able to specialize in what they would refer to as a residency. There's some controversy about whether that should be called a residency. The big difference between an optometrist and an ophthalmologist is that optometrists do not perform surgery. Until fairly recently, they weren't allowed to prescribe medications. Now they can prescribe certain medications. They can prescribe eye drops for glaucoma. There is something called scope of practice, which is changing and will continue to change. But optometrists now are able to prescribe glasses. They prescribe contacts, and they can treat relatively simple eye conditions with eye drops and even oral medications. Ophthalmologists, which is what I am, we go to four years of college, then go to the same medical schools that, for example, Dr. Oaken went to. Literally, we, we did go to the same medical school. And the difference is that Dr. Oaken went on and did an internal medicine residency, and I went on and did a, an ophthalmology residency. So ophthalmologists are MDs who can do surgery, can do the entire gamut of treatment of all eye conditions, prescribing glasses, prescribing contacts, treating glaucoma, other eye diseases, and most importantly, performing surgery. Right. Now there are just so many subspecialties of ophthalmology of what you do too. And actually Wilmer, where you're the clinical director, is just tremendous depth in the different subspecialties. Probably one of the most well-known centers in the world for that. Yeah, it is amazing that a little organ like the eyeball can within itself have 12 subspecialties. So glaucoma, retina, and many others. Now, yeah. We're blessed in this area to have that expertise available to us. Yes. So really, once you become an adult, you need to see either an optometrist or an ophthalmologist on a reasonably frequent basis, because as you said, critical eye diseases are often silent until they rear their ugly head, and then they're harder to treat. Exactly. So, and the truth is, optometrists do, do a very good job. If um, there are, in this country, there are something like 50,000 optometrists and I think something like 18,000 ophthalmologists. And many of those ophthalmologists, as you alluded to, are subspecialists, so they don't do regular eye exams. So it turns out that optometrists do something like five or six times the regular routine eye exams that ophthalmologists do. So they're an important part of the equation. And they do, in general, an excellent job of checking people's eye health. I didn't realize there were so few 
eye specialists in this country. Really, you're talking about less than 100,000 people to service. It's, it's very true. Yeah. Yeah. 25 million people. Wow. Right. Well, yeah. some of the biggest things that you do for otherwise healthy eyes is the correction of nearsightedness and farsightedness. And as you mentioned, you know, glasses, contacts are a big part of that. I wonder if you might comment on something new that was approved by the FDA, which is a drop that improves, I believe, nearsightedness. Well, there is a drop called Vuity. I'm not sure if that's what you're referring to or yes. not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Vuity is a it's a repackaging of an old medication called pilocarpine. And pilocarpine in the eye world is a very old medication eye drop form that was used to treat glaucoma. And it's been used to treat glaucoma for many years, not so much anymore. But one of the side effects of the drop was it made the pupils very small. And through something called the pinhole effect, kind of like squinting your our eyes, people who are on pilocarpine with the small pupils are able to see it far, far and near quite well without glasses. Pilocarpine kind of fell by the wayside because it also causes detached retinas, so it's not used so much for glaucoma anymore. But lately, this company called Allergan repackaged it into a a low-dose form, a low-concentration form, as a drop called Vuity. And their claim is that it improves reading vision in patients, you know, 50 years old is the classic age that they want us to offer it to patients. I've had some success with it. It's not perfect. It also causes headaches and kind of an ache in the brow, and not everyone has found it to be satisfactory. So it's it's a little disappointing. We're still trying it sort of on a case-by-case basis, but it's, it's not really a game changer. It's gotten a lot of press, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we both know how that is. We do. It's good marketing or something like that. Yeah, I think marketing is the pretty important piece to it. Let's talk a little bit about surgery to improve visual acuity, LASIK procedures. Yeah, LASIK surgery, well, going back to refractive surgery, the first iteration of that for myopia, for nearsightedness, was something called radial keratotomy, and that goes back into the late 70s, early 80s. And that had some complications that that involved making very deep slits in the cornea and that flattened the cornea and because of that optically changed the patient's prescription so they were no longer as nearsighted. That that lasted for maybe seven or eight years and it was replaced by laser that actually changes the shape of the cornea by sculpting it. The cornea is the front part of your eye. If you touch your finger to your eyeball, which I don't recommend, you, you touch the cornea. And by sculpting that cornea, by changing the shape of it, specifically for someone nearsighted flattening it, you become less nearsighted. So the first type of laser was used to actually flatten the cornea on the surface called PRK, photorefractive keratectomy. And that was replaced not too many years later by LASIK surgery, which exists today. LASIK surgery is similar to PRK, except we make a flap in the cornea, then treat with laser. And it has the same effect. It flattens the cornea. Refractive surgery is, is actually quite safe. It works most of the time. I have members of my family have had it. I have not. I, I still wear contact lenses, but I, re- I recommend it for people who, for whatever reason, cannot wear glasses comfortably or contact lenses comfortably. There is nothing wrong with LASIK surgery. The benefits far outweigh the risks. What it does not do is correct presbyopia, which is the 40, 45, 50-year-old situation where we can no longer accommodate focus 
for near. It, there really is no great answer for that yet. Yeah. So for the younger patient who's trying to get rid of their glasses, laser surgery, refractive surgery is a pretty good option. But yeah. as you age, it is not so good. And how about if you've had laser surgery, refractive surgery, as you get into, and it worked, and as you get into your mid-40s and late 50s, then do you need glasses? Yeah, often there is some degradation in the correction to the point where many LASIK patients at some point in life still need some part-time glasses for distance. And it's almost certain, it is certain that they'll need something for reading when they get to be 45, 50 years old. And sometimes they're surprised to, to hear that, but it's almost inevitable that they'll need some glasses for reading. Well, let's start talking a little bit about common problems that can help our listeners. I think one of the things that pops up a lot and you hear a lot about is changes in the retina that people worry about called you know, macular degeneration, and there's two types of wet and a dry type. And keeping your eyes healthy from a standpoint nutritionally seems to maybe have an effect on this. And I guess there's probably a hereditary piece to this as well. Could you comment on macular degeneration and what, what the average person should know about it? Yeah, it's obviously a huge problem. It's a major cause of blindness in the world. And it's when people come in for an eye exam, someone 60 years old, the first time I see them, they'll say something like, well, I'm very concerned because my dad lost vision from macular degeneration. So macular degeneration is literally an aging of the macula, which is the most sensitive part of our retina. When we look at a, a person's face or read or um, you know, look at a golf ball, 100 yards away, we're using the macula, which is the most, it's packed with the photoreceptors that allow us to use very fine vision. And as the macula ages in some people, the positive called drusen, D-R-U-S-E-N, develop in it. And if they are numerous enough and large enough, we diagnose the person with macular degeneration. Something like 10% of patients over 60 have macular degeneration in this country and something like 25% of patients over 70. So it's quite common. Yeah, as, as you alluded to, age is part of the name age-related macular degeneration. So age is certainly the, the number one factor, family history. Smoking is a risk factor. Things that, Harry, you deal with every day, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, large abdominal girth, those are all involved. Those are all risk factors for macular degeneration as, or as female sex and blue eyes. So these are all things that we look at. And of course, smoking and hyperlipidemia, hypertension and and weight loss would be things that that we could all look at and and try to correct to reduce the chance of someone developing this this problem. So that can actually maybe help stabilize. And then, you know, there's a combination of vitamins that's been tested through uh, randomized controlled studies called the ARAD vitamins. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, there's no question the age-related eye disease study, which was done, boy, it's probably 20 years old now, looked at certain vitamins and supplements and certain combinations, and it was determined that a certain combination reduced the chance of converting to a more advanced kind of macular degeneration, which, of course, was associated with more vision loss. So vitamin C 
And the initial one was vitamin C, vitamin C, beta carotene, copper, zinc. And then the, they kind of repackaged things later on to get rid of the beta carotene. They kept the copper and the zinc and the vitamin C, but they replaced the beta carotene with zeaxanthin and, and lutein. Because right. there was, as, as you know, there was some risk of, of uh, beta carotene and, and lung cancer, right. especially in smokers. It's certainly the, the data is there. The data are there. And when patients ask me if it's just a gimmick, I say, no, no, there's good science behind it. So there's a lot, there are a lot of vitamin claims that maybe aren't as well studied, but this one is very well studied. And it's certainly recommended for people who actually have macular degeneration to take this vitamin. It probably does nothing if you don't have macular degeneration. Many patients come in and say, look, I'm taking it because my dad lost vision from it, so I decided to take it, and there's no science behind that at all. But if you're diagnosed with macular degeneration, it's, it's certainly a good thing to take the AREDS vitamin. And AREDS is just the, the study that came out that proves it works. AREDS is age-related eye disease study. And I think the science was pretty good. These were, they were a large, randomized, controlled study. So I think it's statistically proven it probably makes a difference. And then the other yeah. thing nutritionally is, you know, the American diet is relatively deficient in good omega-3 fatty acids. And the back of the retina is chock full of a good, healthy omega fatty acid called DHA. And I don't know that there's any data, but I think it's well worth it for Americans to make sure they get plenty of DHA, docohexanoic acid. Yeah, yeah. Fish, and you can get an algal form as well. Yeah, that was looked at later on. They did a, a, a repeat look at these same patients and, and with, with DHA. They really it was inconclusive with DHA, but some smaller studies of macular degeneration have shown it to be beneficial. So yeah, as you said, there are other great benefits from it, so it can't hurt to take it. Well, that's a lot of great information. Let's talk about some common things that I think people want to know about. Every once in a while, I get a call from a patient and they say, I got all of a sudden these things floating around in my eyes. We call them floaters. Let's talk about the importance of new floaters. What does it mean to you? Yeah, many of us know from a young age that occasionally we'll see something looks like a little spider web floating around or a bug or especially against, say, a bright sky or a white wall with fluorescent lighting. You'll see things floating around. And I've had my floaters since I was probably 15 years old. But and as you said, a typical phone call to our office also is they'll, they'll say, well, these are not my usual baseline floaters. This looks like a giant fly in my eyeball to the point where I'm actually reaching out and, and trying to grab the bug. And those are a little more of a concern. So when someone switches from their usual baseline annoying floaters to this huge thing that's impossible to ignore, we recommend that they get their eyes examined. And in the next couple of days, what's even more of a concern is if along with the floater, the patient sees flashes of light, and this is not the same kind of flash that people get with a migraine, which is usually something like a zigzag line and in both eyes. This is in one eye, and it's typically off to the side and, and kind of on the, on the ear side of the field of vision. They'll see a bright flash, kind of like lightning or, or someone using an old-fashioned camera off to the side. And typical floaters are just typical. When I say typical, I mean routine, benign floaters are just aging changes of the vitreous humor, which is a gelatin inside all of our eyes. It really doesn't serve any purpose after we're born. It serves sort of as a scaffolding around which the eye develops. 
And But as we get to be older, and I mean even 15, 20, 25 years old, little pockets of fluid can develop within this vitreous, and you, the patient sees floaters. But sometimes, very suddenly, they can get something called a vitreous detachment, which is when the, the vitreous suddenly collapses on itself. And when it collapses, it kind of wrinkles, and patients see the floater because of the wrinkling effect. And then sometimes, because the, wrinkle, the vitreous has collapsed, it's tugging on the retina, and the retina doesn't know any better than to tell the brain there is light there, so they see the flash. The flash, of course, is, is a phantom kind of sensation. And the reason it's important to get, a, to get an exam within a couple of days is because if the vitreous pulls hard enough, it can actually tear a hole in the retina, which can lead to a detachment. And that's probably 5 to 10% of patients coming in with a vitreous attachment get a, can get a tear. So it's something that requires follow-up by uh, some sort of eye care professional. Optometrists see these same patients every day. And they dilate the pupil to look at, at to, look, to make sure there's no tear or detachment of the retina. Yes. Typically, the, the patients who get these who get these these PVDs, we call them posterior vitreous attachments, are between 55 and 65 years old. That's a, those are pretty classic ages. Yeah, so common. Very then, common. Of course, yeah. once you have these floaters, sometimes they can settle down, but sometimes you're just stuck with them, and your brain has to learn how to ignore them. And they're very annoying, and there was a, a doctor, an ophthalmologist in Virginia who treated these with laser, and that was, it was sort of an um, unusual way of treating them. He claimed very good results. I don't know of anyone, he, I think he has since retired. I don't know of anyone else who's done it. He didn't do any study to prove that they worked without, without the side effects. So Unfortunately, a lot of patients were treated without the benefit of a study that might have proven or disproven that that was a good treatment. But it is possible to do something called a vitrectomy for the floaters, which can get rid of them, but the vitrectomy itself is not totally benign. It, it can cause tears in the retina. It can cause cataracts for someone who hasn't had cataract surgery. So that's also considered kind of right. an extreme. So since you mentioned cataracts, pretty common and something that's easily taken care of. It's something that you do regularly. People typically, I guess, start in their 60s with having it. They can, they can occur earlier, they can occur later. Want to make a quick mention about the cataract surgery? Yeah, a cataract, as most of us know, is a clouding of a lens in the eye. So the cornea that we talked about earlier is the front of the eye behind the iris, which is the blue or brown or hazel or green part of the eye. That's where the lens lives. And the lens in most babies, not all, most babies is crystal clear. And the lens be remains clear until someone is well into their 40s, probably early 50s. At that point, the lens starts to become clouded. And very gradually over the years, it can become cloudy or opaque enough that it begins to interfere with light received to the retina. And then we call it a cataract. Patients complain of glare blurred vision, difficulty driving at night is a classic symptom of it. So cataract surgery is when we remove the lens and replace it with a plastic lens. Many patients are surprised to hear that a cataract isn't some sort of dim or some, some sort of tissue that forms on the front of the eye that just has to be skimmed off. No, it's much deeper than that. It's actually the entire lens of the eye that has to be replaced with a plastic lens. And these days, as most of us know, there are certain lenses that can be placed that can help make the vision better than it was before the cataract even developed to, to help correct astigmatism or even help with reading vision these days. 
And so it's truly miraculous surgery for some people. And I know you perform it regularly with wonderful results. Let's talk a little bit quickly about glaucoma. Part of every eye exam is essential component is checking the pressure in the eyes. And you want that pressure to be at a certain level. And if it starts to go up at a higher level, then it affects the the health of the eye. So could you mention a few things about glaucoma? Yeah, glaucoma is another, it's sort of the big, one of the big three, cataracts, glaucoma, macular degeneration. These are things that typically that are age-related and glaucoma can occur in babies, but it's by and large a disease of middle age and older. Increased intraocular pressure, which is the same as eye pressure, is typically between 10 and 22 millimeters of mercury. But the difference between eye pressure and, for example, blood pressure is that some patients can have much higher eye pressures than 22, and we don't call them glaucoma. So eye pressure is is just a risk factor for glaucoma. Glaucoma is defined as an optic neuropathy, which means it's a, a sickness of the optic nerve that seems to be related to elevated eye pressure. But again, some patients can have eye pressure of 30 and not have glaucoma. Some patients can have eye pressure of 10, which is the lower limit, and have glaucoma. So there are other factors involved, age, family history, race. We know that Black people and Latino people have a four times increased risk over over white people. So certainly there there are a lot of factors involved and I think I alluded earlier to this. One tragedy of glaucoma is that there are no symptoms until it's very advanced. Uh, very often I have people coming in for eye exams after many years and they might be 50, 60 years old. And I tell them, look, you have advanced glaucoma and you've lost a lot of your peripheral vision and you don't even know it, but you're probably going to have major eye problems in, in the next few years. And it's very sad because it could have been treated earlier in life, you know, had they come in for routine exams. So getting the... We, we can, you know, yeah. We, we can treat glaucoma quite well if we catch it early enough. Proactively, you can maintain or improve the loss of peripheral vision. Right. So very essential part of the exam that you do on an annual basis. Yeah, great. And very treatable if, if caught early. Yeah, treatable with usually, usually eye drops, occasionally laser or even less commonly surgery in the operating room, but typically eye drops. Okay. Well, now I just want to make a little plug on something that I talk about annually with my patients, and that is making sure you get your shingle shot because there is a certain type of shingles that can affect the eye. And if you've gotten your shingles shot, which is usually called, it's a standard vaccine, a very safe vaccine that's been around. It's a two-step vaccine. We start to give it around age 55 because shingles uncommonly can affect the eye, but when it does, it can really threaten your eye. So I always like to make a plug about that. You know, shingles can occur anywhere on the body. It's usually one-sided. It can be very painful, but it also can affect eyesight. So I'm sure you're in agreement with that. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah. The last thing I want to mention is a little bit about eye protection. And I think we're learning more and more how important it is to out in the sun to make sure that we're protecting our eyes against uh, ultraviolet light particularly, I guess, ultraviolet B light, because it can have an effect on our eye health. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, there's no question that that uh, ultraviolet light plays a role in certain kinds of glaucoma and probably in macular degeneration and certainly in cataracts. So patients ask me if they should always wear sunglasses out in the sun. And I tell them, not necessarily, but certainly when they're in the, in the height of summer, when the angle of the sun is more direct, that they should wear sunglasses. And 
Certainly, it's a simple way of protecting our eyes from diseases that are associated with UV light. Something else that's come up recently is the blue blocking. I don't know if that's something that that's a good we have topic. time to talk about, but yeah. and it's it's purely anecdotal. A lot of patients come in and say, oh, I'm using a, these blue blockers and I find they make a big difference for me. There's no research that actually supports that yet, but somehow there are a lot of patients who use a computer, for example, who find benefit in the blue blocking glasses. So there is absolutely no reason to avoid, no reason not to do it, to try it out. If you're someone who has a hard time uh, with eye fatigue in front of a computer all day long, you know, go for it. Try the blue blocking glasses. There's no research that supports it yet, but certainly it's not in any way harmful to wear them. So I encourage people to try them. While we're on that topic, so in the spectrum of light, of visual light, of colored light, so we do know that actually at nighttime, when we're trying to go to sleep, melatonin, which is secreted by the pineal gland, will get activated during darkness. And that melatonin, which is a powerful antioxidant, is good for our bodies in lots of different ways. And so it probably is reasonable to make sure to get that melatonin to get secreted and to improve your sleep, your restorative sleep is to make sure you're sleeping in a relatively dark room so you don't get that activated. And I guess blue light, any light will activate the suprachiasmic nucleus to tell the pineal gland to secrete melatonin. Yeah, that's a good theory, sure, yeah. There has been a study, I think, yeah, I think it does help with sleep. And I think that actually has been proven in a study, but the actual effects on health of the eyes have, have not. So it's probably worthwhile to sleep in a dark room and also probably to avoid, you know, a lot of people take their iPads and their computers and have their TVs on at night. And sometimes they keep them on and maybe that affects the quality of their sleep. Maybe it doesn't, I'm not sure. Well, this has been a terrific educational podcast, and I want to thank you for your time. It's been great to have you with me, and we'll close by saying that this is Dr. Harry Oaken for the Columbia Association-sponsored podcast called Finding Your Wellness. Thanks for listening, and you can tune into our podcast on dragondigitalradio.podbean.com. Thanks for listening connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio.